Last week, I talked about God and what it seemed to me to indicate in Scripture was that in Genesis 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that at that point, God created time. And back here, before God created time, God was there but existed eternally without time. That in his own being, there was no progression or succession of moments. And that's part of God's eternity. But once God created time, Old Testament, New Testament, here we are in 2006. Once God created time, then time will go on forever. And that God sees all of this and can act in it as he will. And I made a comment in passing that I think that physicists believe that matter, time, and space all exist together. And if you don't have matter or, or uh, space, you don't have time either. And then that there's some debate among theology professors about whether, in fact, God created time or whether time has always existed. And, and uh, minority says time has always existed, but the majority of Bible-believing people have said God created time. And I pointed some verses that look that way. <clears throat> what That was the week that Garth was trying to deal with the impossible jamming of the Xerox machine for an hour. And, uh, and finally he came back. And then I'd forgotten that I had asked him to give to Xerox just like a few copies, I've got about eight, of this article I published, The Nature of Divine Eternity, a response to William Lane Craig, where this philosopher friend of mine and I were debating in a journal. So I still have eight of those if anybody wants that here. But afterward, Mike Mobley came up to me and said, well, I would be interested in talking to you a little bit more about that. What, I didn't, what I'd forgotten is that Mike is a physicist. What I've learned since last Sunday is that Mike, who is the Associate Director of the Biodesign Institute at, is it a, at ASU, uh, that Mike is a physicist by training. He was a research director of a division of Procter & Gamble before coming to ASU. Not only that, uh, so then I said, well, Mike, could you uh, spend a few minutes today talking about what is time, according to physicists? What I didn't realize, <laughs> this is really astounding. How many of you knew, that, I mean, we have unusual people in here, but I didn't know that we have somebody who has published an article in a professional physics journal amending Einstein's general, uh, special theory of relativity. <laughs> That's Mike Mobley. Come, Mike, and uh, tell us about physics and time. Mike will take about 15, 20 minutes, and then uh, I'll come back to some Bible verses after that. Thank you. You and Einstein, we have you together. All right. Yeah, Wayne asked me to talk uh, about a scientist's uh, view of time and how it relates to the things we were uh, learning about last, last week. Uh, most of us in this room have some uh, perception of time. Uh, we, we've spent a lot of it. Uh, we know that time's responsible for wrinkles. Time's responsible for uh, the memory loss that a lot of us are suffering these days. Uh, but I wanted to give uh, a, a better and fuller understanding of, of time. And uh, this is going to be a crash course in theoretical physics. So don't go running for the exits yet. I'll try and make it as simple as, as possible. Um, but 
the key takeaway for all of you today, if you don't understand anything else that I say, is the, um, what, what I've got up here. First of all, time is motion. Time is change. Well, we're familiar with that, with the uh, memory loss and uh, wrinkles we're all developing. Uh, time is relative. Um, we may have some perception about that. Um, uh, many of you wives have asked uh, your husbands how much time is left in uh, the football game, and he says, two minutes. Well, you know, a half an hour later, the game is still going. So apparently time is relative, and you know, you have one perception of time, and he has another perception of time. Uh, we'll talk about what it means to the physicists for uh, time to be relative. And as Wayne was mentioning uh, to a scientist, a time is linked to space and matter. The, the uh, time, space, and matter are inseparable, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And also, from uh, everything we understand, time has a beginning. Let me take you through uh, just a little bit of history of time. Um, up until Einstein, most of the philosophers and most of the scientists understood a time to be absolute, um, or thought in terms of absolute time. What is absolute time? Uh, first of all, the implication is that it is separate from space, independent of space. Uh, more important, uh, time is the same, or time intervals are the same, no matter who me measures them. If you and I have identical clocks, you know, and we, you know, maybe even synchronize the clocks and look identical. If you were on the top of a mountain and I was down here, the assumption would be that time would be the same. If you were on the moon and I was here, the assumptions are that the time on our clocks would be the same. Uh, so th th this has been, you know, the, the assumptions that most uh, philosophers and scientists had. And um, an important thing in the development of our understanding of mechanics and physics is that we can measure time. Um, and it's usually measured by periodic events. I'm going to move this down a little bit. I'm getting a little echo. Well, we've always known it's important to, to measure time. And uh, uh, we know the simplest thing is to measure by periodic events. And uh, the cycles of the sun seem to be the most uh, repetitive and most uh, reliable uh, events that most of us were experiencing for the last several thousand years, and so that was our standard of, of measure of time. Uh, one cycle defined uh, one day, 24 hours. Uh, you know, the ancients thought uh, the sun went around the Earth. Today we know we're talking about the rotation of the Earth, so the ro there's a single rotation of the Earth every 24 hours. We've divided that up into uh, hours with 60 minutes and, and then 60 seconds within each hour. So that's our definition of a, a unit of time. But today we measure time much better than watching the, the cycles of the uh, sun around us uh, using sundials. Uh, we actually use atomic clocks. Basically these are uh, 5 megahertz quartz clocks driven or synchronized by um, uh, the vibrations or the atomic transitions of cesium. And so we have very accurate measurements today of time. In fact, time is the most accurately measured thing in all of physics. Uh, we can measure time to one part in 10 to the 14th. And, and why this is important is because everything else we do in science and physics depends upon um, uh, our measurement of time. Um, as I mentioned, Oops, get to the next one here. Time is uh, 
again, the most important parameter. It is the foundation for our, most of our understanding of mechanics. Um, let me describe this very, very br briefly here. Um, objects move in space. So we can define a coordinate in space. We'll call that the coordinate S. And we have uh, an object moving from S sub A, position A, to S sub B, position B. OK, so we want to know how far it's done. So we subtract uh, uh, A from B, and we get the distance. Now, it's very simple. So the distance an object has traveled is delta S. Oh, no, so maybe I'll refer to it up here. OK, so we've got delta S is just the difference uh, than an, uh, in distance an object has traveled. OK, time interval is measured by a clock. Okay. So at time B, we're at uh, position B. Time A, we're in first. So delta, delta T, just measurement of time and in whatever parameter, in seconds, hours, or, or whatever. Uh, and so our velocity or speed is delta S over delta T. The difference between velocity and speed. Velocity is just uh, speed with a direction vector associated with it. Speed would be an absolute number, and velocity it has a specific direction associated with it. Newton developed his first law, and that is, or he developed all the laws of mechanics that we utilize today, but uh, his first law, objects in motion will stay in motion at the same velocity unless acted on by a force. This was a, um, a radical proposition at the time in terms of uh, not only stating it, but uh, developing it mathematically, because before that, uh, scientists believed the way Aristotle taught, and that was things tended to stay in relative rest unless acted upon by a force. But most of us, uh, if we've ever slammed on the brakes in the car, know that we all move forward. You know, and so our natural state is actually in motion, and it takes a force to change our, our, our motion. So uh, Newton developed his laws based upon that. Um, and let's look at a, what I'm going to call a simple speed trap to understand relative motion. And what we have here is we've got, this is an ancient speed trap, so our policeman has marked out a one-mile uh, grid here um, along the highway, and he's stationed here. He's got a stopwatch. He's going to determine how fast the cars move along the, this grid. Um, got two cars, one in um, one minute travels a half mile, and another, a little faster, travels one mile in that minute as measured by our, our policeman here. Okay, so the faster car to him is moving at 60 miles an hour, and the slower car here is moving at 30 miles an hour. So that's relative to our policeman. Now we know that if this car here is looking at the speed of this car, in that same one minute, that car, the red car has moved away from this car a half mile. Okay, so the relative speed of the red car versus the green car is 30 miles an hour. So we see, in this particular case, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> this car sees the red car moving at, at 60 miles an hour, this one's moving at 30, and it sees the red car moving at 30 miles an hour. That's what we call a Galilean transformation, in case you needed to understand. 
Well, now, as I just mentioned, according to Newton's laws, there is no preferred spatial reference frame. All can be in relative motion, and there is no absolute rest. If we looked at what we were just talking about, compared to we have the red car in motion here relative to our, our police car, but the reference frame of this green car where it sees that it's 30 miles an hour is just as valid. All the laws of physics are just as valid in that reference frame as in the reference frame of the police car. Go back here. Actually, this was interesting because when Newton formulated this idea, he had real conflict because what it said was there's no absolute reference frame, frame with regard to motion. And he believed in absolutes. He believed the, the, the Bible taught in absolutes. So he actually struggled initially with his Christian faith to believe that this was actually true. Uh, Newton's laws are symmetric in time. There's no forward or backwards in his laws. I don't know if you've thought about that. Most of the laws of mechanics, the conservation of momentum, of energy, all those laws that we have, generally uh, you can run those forward or backwards. Uh, I could have run these cars backwards, and all the laws are maintained. All the laws except one, and that is the second law of thermodynamics. The second law says that in any system, entropy will increase. We will go from order to disorder. And to go the other way, you're going to have to expend information or energy. What that primarily says is the only way that we understand whether the universe is going forward or backwards is because um, entropy is increasing. The other thing that it tells us if entropy or disorder in the universe is increasing is the universe must have had a more ordered beginning. And also that it cannot be infinite in age. So just the idea that this, the second law of thermodynamics exists says that there's a finite age to the universe. Either it's finite an age, or something or someone has to be pumping new energy and new information into the universe all the time to sustain it. So those are the conclusions you'd have to come to. Now I'm going to share with you a, a something that's rather phenomenal to our way of thinking. And that is, we're going to talk about comparisons of the speed of light in different reference frames. Now what we're going to do, instead of a one-mile uh, um, distance, we're going to map out 186,000 um, miles. And we're going to measure for one second. So we've got some space, place out there in space. We can pretend it's the moon. We've you know, laid a marker up on the moon. And we're going to measure the uh, speed of light. I'm going to measure from Earth, and I'm also going to measure from our rocket ship here. Now, from Earth, I have a pulse of light out to wherever I'm measuring in it. I can measure it, and it's going to be 186,000 miles per second, the speed of light. Now, I've got a rocket ship moving at 93 miles, uh, 93,000 miles per second relative to Earth. And I'm going to measure the speed of light relative to that rocket ship now. Now, if we thought about the way we were comparing cars, we would have thought that that's going to be 93,000 miles per second that the speed of light is going to be relative to our rocket ship. However, if we measure it, it's also 186,000 miles per second. The speed of light doesn't change 
as we change reference systems. Well, this was confusing to scientists up until the time of Einstein when he proposed what the solution was. Let me take you this very quickly. This basically summarizes as quickly as I can Einstein's theory of special relativity, but we'll get into that. Um, make this comparison. Uh, the distance the light travels relative to the moving rocket, we said, I call that delta uh, S uh, R, and that's the sub R there, that's for the rocket, is less than the distance that the light travels relative to Earth, that's delta E. And you can understand that because that rocket ship was moving. But as the speed of light is equal in both uh, reference frames, then we must have it that the uh, time measured by the rocket, delta T, must be less than the time measured on Earth. Again, the equation is the speed of light is equal to the distance traveled over T. So if this distance of the, that the light travels relative to the rocket is less than this distance that the light travels versus the Earth, then the time must be less also. Okay, so all of a sudden the times are different in these two circumstances that we have here. Um, so we can relate the time measured. This is where Einstein's equations actually come in. We can relate the time measured in the moving rocket to the time on the Earth by this equation. Now, let me just tell you what this equation is. These are the same parameters that we talked about here, although scientists like to uh, uh, put their equations in terms of squares, simply because when you have multiple dimensions, remember uh, Pythagorean theorem, um, the actual length is better related when you have multiple dimensions by, by the squares. So this is just the square of these different parameters. Um, but what we have here is this is the time as measured in our rocket times the speed of light. So this is a distance the light would travel relative to our you know, the reference frame of our rocket that we were talking about. If we square that and add it to the squares of the distance traveled by our rocket, we get the distance traveled by the light on Earth. So this is basically fundamentally Einstein's equation in a different form than you may it's often seen. But this allows us to always compare light, uh, the speed of, well, the distance light travels in two different reference frames. So what does this mean in terms of uh, Einstein's uh, theory of special uh, relativity? First of all, it means that time is relative, as we said. There's no absolute time. The time measured by a traveler on a rocket is different than the traveler on, on Earth. Um, you may have heard about that. We talked about when the astronauts come back from space, that if they add a clock with them, that they actually age less than those, those of us on Earth because of the amount of time that they've traveled. Uh, events uh, simultaneous in one reference frame may not be simultaneous in other. Not only is the time of the clocks different in those different circumstances, but they see what might be a simultaneous event differently. Um, or if on Earth, two events look like they're simultaneous, I'm traveling in a rocket ship, they may not be simultaneous to me. So that's another uh, factor. Uh, the faster ones goes, the slower uh, the clocks run. In other words, that faster that rocket ship was going relative to Earth, on Earth, I would see that that clock on the ro that rocket ship would be going slower and slower to me 
Um, the speed of light is the fastest we can transfer mass and energy. By these same equations, we know we can't exceed the speed of light. That's going to be impossible for us. So what happens uh, at the speed of light as, as clocks slow down? We'll talk about that in a second. Um, the other important factor, time is an additional dimension in the space-time continuum. Now all of a sudden, because I related space and time in this, in this special way, I can changes in uh, distance and space are equated in other reference frames with changes in time. So time and space are intimately connected here. Time and space and matter are all intimately connected, and time does not exist aside from space and matter. This is a little bit further expanded, but as Wayne was talking about, this is the understanding of physicists. Um, matter does not exist in space and time. Space, time, and matter are one and the same thing. Uh, we can measure the rate the universe is expanding. Now, well, how can we do this? Well, as I mentioned, now all of a sudden clocks in two different systems have different rates that they go. When I say clocks, I should also point out that that means everything that uh, uh, takes place in time. So the vibrations of the atoms in a particular system, the frequency which they emit light is all going to be ch changed Well, it is a measure of the time within every system. So if I have a distant star moving away from us here in this solar system, if, if it was moving away, time would appear to go slower in that, on that star. So when light comes from that star, based upon the frequency of emission of light, that frequency will become longer, or basically call it slower. We call it a redshift. So the faster a star is moving away from us, the more it is redshifted. So we understand that the, when we look out in the night sky, that the universe is expanding, and it's expanding fairly rapidly. And based upon what we see in our telescopes and the rate that the universe is expanding, we can extrapolate it backwards and say the universe had to have a beginning approximately 15 billion years ago. In other words, there had to be a beginning to this, the rate we're expanding, and that's what scientists talk about in terms of a Big Bang. In other words, um, you know, it, we can't believe that scientists can't trace anything that goes back further than 15 billion years. Um, interestingly, you've heard about you know, the Big Bang and how you know, we, we came to converge upon it. There's microwave radiation circulating around in the, in the universe. It's, a, it's believed that that microwave radiation, the source of it, was the initial event that uh, created time, uh, space, and matter. We can detect that, but because that's been moving at the speed of light throughout the universe, that microwave radiation is only seconds old. And I talked about relative time. So although I talk about the universe maybe being 15 billion years old, that's in terms of how long it takes for light to get from a distant galaxy to us. Um, but relative to the light that's bouncing around, that light 
is only has only experience a few seconds in time. And then when we said here we cannot go back in time beyond a big bang. In other words, everything converges and then time stops when we go back to a singularity, which we call the Big Bang. Comment. The one variation that my recent paper had on Einstein's theory of relativity, and that was, as we, we talked about, um, the, the fastest we can move um, mass or energy is the speed of light. They made the assumption that the subcomponents of uh, all particles, and that would be the subcomponents of quarks and leptons, all move at one speed, and that's the speed of light. Uh, that same equation that I showed you earlier, what that suggests is that there's a fundamental, that we talked about a clock in any reference frames. There's not just a clock, there's a particle moving at the speed of light in, uh, in all matter. And what this tells us is that the speed of light is the speed of time. And it basically universally dictates what the speed of time is in our universe. Uh, time is motion, and motion, as we said, is the motion of the fundamental subatomic particles, or the things that uh, make up quarks and leptons. Um, Interesting thing with these equations, you've heard about scientists talking about up to about 11 different dimensions, 10 spatial dimensions and one time dimension, is that when subatomic particles move at the speed of light, um, they may move in their own three dimensions, but if we're moving relative to them, it appears to add an additional dimension. So they actually look like, and you can almost see, see that from this equation, this looks like a fourth dimension relative to that. And actually, the transformation equations suggest that uh, it looks like a fourth dimension, but this motion is within the same three dimensions as these. But um, another interesting uh, question that theoretical physicists have is whether there's uncertainty in the universe or was, whether the universe is deterministic. In other words, is it? Uh, based upon something like Newton's mechanics. If you know specific initial conditions, whether you, you know the final conditions, they're dictated by the initial conditions, or is the universe uncertain, that you can't know final conditions even if you had all the initial conditions specified. I might mention my variation turns us back into a deterministic uh, universe because it eliminates uncertainty. That's, uh, that's going to be controversial. Um, what does this mean to the question? Now, I probably lost everybody here, haven't I? <laughs> okay. Um, we'll go back and, and relate it to what Wayne talked about or what, what it actually teaches. Time and space and matter that make up a universe are all created entities, all intimately connected. They have an origin. The best the scientists can see is they can trace it back you know, 13 to 15 billion years ago, but we can't trace time before that. So God must exist outside time, space, and matter. So it's suggesting clearly then that God acts in space and time, but is not constrained by space and time. For the past, present, and future all within God's sight. Now comment on this. Um, we sort of understand that we've got this uh, 
clear indication from the Bible and the verses that uh, Wayne mentioned. Um, not sure you realize, uh, basically only the uh, religions based upon the Bible have this view that God is outside of time and that the universe was created at a particular moment in time. For instance, the Hindu religion or Eastern religions uh, believe the time, that the universe is infinite in, it, in, its, in its scope and its time, and it recycles. And again, for instance, there's uh, reincarnation in that. So another Christian apologetic is the Bible lines up with everything we know in science. Um, the Eastern religions have a tough time with this because they don't believe in an origin. And then, you know, interesting extrapolation, of course, is that miracles are an evidence that God controls space and time. Uh, maybe controversial here, but changing the future, God alters the apparent past. You can deal with that, but Christ changes water into wine. After that is done, do we have any evidence that that wine was ever water? Well, there's no physical evidence any, any longer. The apparent past has been altered. How do we know it? Well, our memories have recorded it. If we, if we take the testimony of um, those witnesses that he changed water into wine, but we've lost the physical evidence, if you will, because now in the, from, from that point on, that, that water is wine. So just something to think about. You've seen this slide before. It's looking about 12 billion years into the past of the, of the universe. Um, but to think about you know, how big and how great our God is, and, and Wayne said, if God is outside of time, how do we think of that? How, if he's outside of our universe and outside of time? Um, my favorite analogy is thinking about a DVD. This happens to be a DVD of the life of Luther. So contained in this DVD is a, a story that traces the chronological life uh, of Luther. It was put together by the, uh, the movie producer, the director. Uh, actually, when it was produced, it was probably shot in different sequences in different order and assembled into a single DVD for us. If we watch the DVD, we see the life of Luther unfold from, from beginning to end. But if you think about it, I have the life of Luther all contained right here within that DVD from beginning to end. And the person who produced that DVD sees it, knows it from beginning to end, and I can see it from beginning to end this way. And I'm outside of that DVD. If we think of a uh, God that created the universe, to, to God, this is what the universe is. Something that he, you know, don't lose my analogy, God is not in space and time. But he sustains the universe and he perused the universe, you know, uh, from beginning to end and knows all the content of the universe. And so that's one way for us to, to think about it. Well, I don't know if there's any quick questions, if I've lost everybody. Yeah. I'm, I, let me get the question again. Oh, that's a good question. Has speed, has the speed of light ever changed? 
Um, not that we know of. You know, I know people have speculated and scientists have tried to understand whether it has or not. Um, what would happen if the speed of light was infinite? Have you ever thought about that? No, actually, actually, the interesting thing is we are fortunate the speed of night light is not infinite because the world would begin and end in an instant as fast as the speed of light is. So God created the speed of light less than infinite speed in order to have the existence of this universe and the sequence of time. So it's the speed of light that determines the time. It is the scale that we are all you know, functioning under. Now, some people have speculated that, you know, if the speed of light would change, the, the rate of things would change. And, and um, but the one issue is everything changes as soon as the speed of light does. The rotation of the earth, the speed of the rotation of the earth changes. Uh, the, the, uh, the planetary motions all change. Uh, so it becomes an interesting question. The whole speed of the universe is scaled by the speed of light. So we're thankful that you know God has made it that we can live within it, and to to God He can make it as fast or as slow as He wants. <laughs> I'm sorry, John. If you take, if I sort of believe God created Earth somewhere around 10,000 years ago, mm -hmm. relate that to the 15 billion with your theory to me. And am I wrong? <laughs> One thing I probably uh, want to give you out, out, of, out of this is when I said time was relative and God's outside of time, uh, it's, it's difficult for us to confine God to time, and it's very, very difficult to confine God to our times. Could, based upon our time, God have created the world 10,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago. Let me say that, yes, he could have. However, it would look at that point in time 15 billion years old. And the reason I, I say that is that's the process that we're in. In other words, you, you've heard it said, you know, if he created Adam instantly, Adam would look like a, maybe a 25-year-old man. If he created a tree instantly, it would look like with tree rings. So, so we measure, scientists, we measure process. We measure what the age of the earth looks like. As I said, God, from his point of view, if the speed of life was in, in, infinite, the 15 billion years to God you know, happens in a second. So how long did God take to, to make the universe? God just said, come into existence, and it, and it existed. You know, uh, I'm going to talk about the age of uh, the date of creation okay. in about uh, six weeks. Great, great. You can take care of that one. <laughs> <laughs> when do you need? No, I take two more. Okay. Well, I'm, mine is two things. One, um, I'm just sitting here in, in awe as I think about that the Bible says God is like what, what a whole new meaning that brings to that simple statement, the things you said today. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I'd like you to comment on is this phenomenon that I'm becoming more and more aware of, 
that people our age talk about time is moving faster? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that goes back to the relative time. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. It, it, you hear that? You know, for people our age, time definitely is moving faster. Right? <laughs> oh, what we got, said John? Are scientists sure that the yardstick measuring device that they're using always remains constant? Yeah, that, that's similar to the question we're talking about. Does, does the speed of light remain constant? And that's what you're asking, John. In every place, in other words, uh, if we go from one place to another, uh, if we go further out? Um, we're moving further away because the Doppler effect is showing that. There, there's one thing that now we can look at ancient, I mean, distant galaxies. And we can see that the same laws of gravitation are being obeyed by those distant galaxies as we have in our close-by galaxies. You may be familiar with that. The rotation of the galaxies, the attraction of, you know, of the stars and all that is exactly the same as what we find here when we look out you know, 12 billion years in space. So um, that, you know, as far as we can tell, we're applying all the same laws everywhere else, and they, they look like they're coherent. Okay. <laughs> Mike, I, I, I think the more we ask you questions, the more fascinating this is. And it, it could go on, but I, I'm probably going to take about 10 minutes and bring it back to the Bible here at the end. And uh, this, we've got to get out. Mike, thank you so much. I'll tell you what's encouraging to me as I was sitting here. This is one example, um, but there are others, that in all the fields of study, in all the universities of the world, the very smartest people in those fields of study can look at the Bible and still say the Bible is consistent with what we know. And that's absolutely amazing. Um, so um, as contrasted to other religions' view of time, they didn't get it. Um, so thanks very much, Mike. And uh, that was really that was really fascinating. Okay, where we were was we were talking about incommunicable attributes of God. We talked about independence. We talked about unchangeableness, and now we talked about eternity. And this is on your handout. God has no beginning or end, and that is consistent. If God is an infinite being. But doesn't, Mike, if, if God doesn't exist in spatial dimensions, then he could have no beginning or end. Exactly. Or succession of moments in his own being. That here, that God in his own being, or before there was a creation, God just existed. But he sees all time equally vividly, yet he sees events in time and acts in time. And we talked about Jesus talking about being, in a sense, eternally present. Before Abraham was, I am. Um, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. <clears throat> a picture that he's sort of sitting outside of time, outside of this DVD that Mike used as an analogy. And then I had found these verses that I wasn't even aware about of when I wrote that article on timeless eternity for God. Um, God's purpose, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and literally the Greek is before times eternal, uh, prochronon, ionion, so that the idea is time began, and then it'll go on forever. It won't ever end. But there was a before, 
And that's when God planned to give us salvation. And again, before uh, times eternal in Titus 1-2, and uh, Jude talking about praise being given to God before all time, pro pantos tu ionos, that is, um, again, a picture that's the same as what Mike presented, that once God created, then time began. And uh, so God existed before there was any time. He existed eternally. And God never began. That's one of those things that maybe puzzled you as a Sunday school student and still puzzles us today. How could God never begin? But if if time began at some point, then it, it, it puts it outside of that realm a little bit and it helps us understand a little bit more. And then I said last week, it's apparently impossible to, for us to think of this in any significant way. It's an incommunicable attribute, but now I've added, but an analogy is watching a video or a DVD that Mike mentioned to me. Um, so God created time along with the creation of the universe in Genesis 1.1. Uh, God sees all time equally vividly. And again, if he's not located in any one place, but is everywhere present, does that make sense? He can see time. I mean, he can be outside. I'm kind of looking at you, but I'm not. Okay. Um, uh, a thousand years in God's sight are but as yesterday when it is past. We will always exist in time. What's the application for our lives? Um, number one, God is Lord of time and rules over time and acts in it how and when he will. Um, with this picture of God ruling over time and creating it and creating the universe, uh, God is pleased to accomplish his work gradually over time and to progressively manifest his glory over time in our lives. And I was just thinking about that as, as Mike said, well, God didn't create the speed of light to be infinite, but to be finite so that the whole history of the world didn't happen in an instant, but it happens over a sequence of time. It happens gradually. And when things happen over time, then God, God gradually unfolds his plans. And then we see more things to thank him for, more things to trust him for, more things to be obedient for. And so over the course of our lives, different events happen. Different challenges come to us, different things to pray about, different things to trust God for, different things to decide if we're going to be courageous and be obedient to God or not when it's hard. And in all those things, God lets events happen in time. So why did God create time? My suggestion is perhaps so that events could happen. I don't know if that seems important to you or not, but if there wasn't any time, events couldn't happen. And if events didn't happen, what would your life be like? See, it'd be, it'd be boring or, it, I don't know, it wouldn't happen. Um, why does God want events to happen? Perhaps so that God's character can be demonstrated and our character can be demonstrated. So this glorifies God. And Peter says, when you have been tested... If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, the idea of once a hard situation has come into your life, God watches. And then if you respond in a way that trusts God and is obedient to him and still gives him glory, God says, yes, there's a genuineness. I've tested it in time. And I can see that you love me. I can see that you trust me. 
And that results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, on the last day, then God will look back at these events and say, well done. And he'll be pleased. So time is important because it continually provides opportunities for us to be obedient or to trust in God. So that was, that was where we were. Now, can you push Trent B on the laptop? B, just the letter B. Thanks. <laughs> Now, do you want to say more? Was there something more? I mean, having thought, well, sometimes when I make a presentation, I sit down, oh, I wish I had said something else. You don't know, what, know whether anybody understood Yeah. <laughs> well, look, this idea of, of the cars traveling and the 30-mile-an-hour car, you see the 60-mile-an-hour car going at 30 miles an hour, that helps us understand the idea of time changes as we're in motion. And speed changes, our perception. And, and that, that really, I thought that was really helpful. At least I thought it was really helpful. Yes, no, I, did, I think we didn't understand it all, but I think we understood a fair bit of it. And the takeaway is that it's consistent with physics that God created time. And it's not an absolute thing. And if light is the one thing's not changing, what does it mean that God is light when the Bible says God is light? That was just, uh, Sharon's question. And why does the one thing that God has surrounding himself and manifest his glory is light? Interesting. Any thoughts? Mike? Yeah, well, the only comment that I may have not clarified is to a physicist, all this looks like mathematics. Yeah. And the reason I comment on that, uh, we have a perception of tangible things. Um, but if you look at the universe, all it is is points in motion, you know, defined by the speed of light. Yeah. And it's a completely different view of the universe, but it's one that easily exists within the mind and purview of God huh. um, that, that we're experiencing and sustained by God. Okay, I, I can't translate that. Into <laughs> All right. Here's the takeaway for me. Uh, what an amazing God we have. Uh, and his eternity. Amazing that he can exist out of time, that outside of time he can create time. So now, Trent, would you push B again? And we're going to sing. And I think we're going to sing um, verses... <laughs> One and four, and then we'll. It's 9:15. We're going to push it to about 9:17, but I think we'll be out of here in time. Let's uh, let's stand and sing. Next week we talk about God's unity, and uh, then what does it mean that God is spirit, and what does it mean that God is invisible, and can we see God at all? That's next time. Okay. And Mike, thank Mike, thank you again. Thanks. Okay. Lord, we give you thanks. We thank you for the excellence of your word that through ages and ages it has proved true. And even now, with the advance of modern science, we see there are things there that, that you knew that probably the biblical authors didn't even understand when you guided them to write those words. We thank you that you are the unchanging God from everlasting to everlasting. You are the eternal I am. And Lord, thank you for Mike and the 
wisdom and understanding you've given him of the nature of the world that you've created and for his willingness to share with us these things and for the way it encourages our faith and strengthens our confidence in your word. Go with us now through each moment of the time that you have created for us in this next week. In Jesus' name, amen.